Welcome to the LPP Podcast. My name is Zach Rhodes. I'm a coach at LPP, or the Life Process Program. LPP was founded by Dr. Stanton Peel. It's an online program that offers personalized help, including written exercises and then written responses from a trained addiction coach. The program also provides ongoing one-on-one communication between the person using the program and their respective coach. That coach will communicate with you the way that you prefer, either through written messages or a call or video interface or all of those things. LPP coaches are trained to talk about addictions in a way that puts people seeking help at the center of the dialogue. The whole system is founded in the best addiction science and evidence available, and at the same time it's compassionate, non-judgmental, and totally commonsensical. Indeed, we offer alternative to 12-step programs and an alternative to diagnostic and disease-based programs one may be accustomed to. It's possible that someone is experiencing something that is best described as an addiction, but we would never call that person an addict. In fact, most people grow out of their addictions on their own over time, which makes our job at LPP quite simple and clear. We're just helping you understand and articulate and expedite the process of overcoming addiction, which is a process that you may well have achieved on your own over time. If you want to learn more about us, you can visit the website lifeprocessprogram.com or follow us on social media. Links to all of those things are in the show notes. Today's podcast actually doesn't center around our own program. Actually, the podcast itself is not a promotional tool. It certainly has some benefit of promoting our program, but it's meant to be an educational resource. We can't know that you, on the other end, are a person who would actually benefit from joining an online addiction program. Maybe you just want to learn about our perspective. So that's what we want to offer. In line with that message, if there's something that you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, please reach out either on social media, which I've linked to in the show notes, or through email, info at lifeprocessprogram.com, also in the show notes. Today you're going to hear Stanton Peel interviewing someone else. I invited Stanton on one of my podcasts a few years ago, and on that podcast he interviewed two brilliant therapists and authors. Their names are Pat Denning and Jeannie Little. They're proponents of common sense, person-centered, and harm reduction-based therapeutic services, and they walk the walk. They have a growing nonprofit in the San Francisco area, as well as a book, so they can scale those concepts across the country. The book is called Over the Influence. And it's safe to say that basically all of the things that these two talk about in the interview are so aligned with our values and principles at the Life Process Program. What you're about to hear is Dr. Peel interviewing these two authors about the second edition of their book, Over the Influence. Let us know how you think he did on the other side of the interview process. Hope you enjoy. Pat and Jeannie, it's great to be with you on the event of the second edition of Over the Influence. And to just commemorate your latest thinking and just the whole phenomenon of your breakthrough approach and original work in the field. Uh, you know, I think Zach and I both feel it's just a privilege to take a part in this. Pat and Jeannie, Am I right to remember that we first met at a GPA conference in San Francisco a few decades ago? Do you recall that at yes, all? Yes, I do. I do recall that. And that, that is where we, we first met in person. Yes, a million years ago. No, I was able to write a review in the first edition of uh, on Over the Influence. And what I, the word I used was brave. Ah. And your work struck me as the first time that I saw people unabashedly endorse a truth that everybody else in the field seemed to be ignoring, which was 
many people, virtually all people, take substances of different types. And some at different times have more or less problems. And your concept, as I read it in Over the Influences, all of these people, if they want it, deserve to be treated with respect and help. That struck me as such an honest and straightforward truth, but at the same time as a radical departure from the standard treatment model. Do you feel I'm in the right, uh, I've got the right beam on this? Do I? Yeah, ab- absolutely, and I, and I think it's that spirit that has carried us forward from the year 2000 till now. Um, you know, we, we really take a, we look at harm reduction psychotherapy as a, a truly revolutionary collaboration between the client and the clinician, um, with each one bringing essential knowledge and skills to the treatment relationship. And, and part of that you know, revolutionary collaboration is that we, we really understand that, that people have a primary attachment or a relationship with the drugs that they use, and, and we respect and work with that relationship, not in opposition to it, and um, and we also truly really understand that there are both benefits and harms. Um, even when people have what we might identify as a drug problem, they still are experiencing benefits. And that without respecting and working with the person's benefits, you don't really get very far. That's, that's really, uh, I think, beautifully put. Am I right that both of you came out of originally uh, traditional treatment backgrounds where you were exposed to the existing model? Um, No, that's that's not true for me. I came out of a strictly psychodynamic psychotherapy background, and it was in um, working at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic with, um, with young men who were being kicked out of drug treatment because they wouldn't be totally abstinent that I finally started looking into traditional treatment programs and, and was appalled. Um, and, um, and at that point, which was the early 80s, started trying to think and develop um, alternative ways of looking at it. So, so I came out of this strictly as a, you know, really an individual psychotherapist. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't really have any experience of addiction treatment until I got a job um, in a uh, dual diagnosis um, treatment program at the Veterans Administration Hospital in San Francisco. And um, a lot of the, well, all of the patients had some sort of emotional or mental illness and some were combat vets and had post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the program was actually really very attentive to both people's uh, mental health distress or emotional distress and symptoms and so forth, as well as to their their substance use issues. Uh, the problem that I found was that the the mode of treatment, when the staff was talking to the clients about their um, their addiction, so to speak, was very confrontational and disrespectful. And as a social worker, I just thought this was odd. Why would you take a directive and um, disrespectful and dismissive sort of attitude to somebody 
when they were struggling with drugs, when, 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 when you were talking with them about their emotional distress, your, your uh, approach to them was supportive and kind and compassionate. I thought it was bizarre. Um, I didn't understand it. Um, I learned more about it, and I learned that the attitude of traditional treatment was that um, if you didn't um, accept that you had um, that you were out of control and that you needed to quit um, any and all drugs immediately, then you were in denial and um, you were not ready for treatment. And I thought it was very strange that um, this was seemed to be a problem that you had to have already solved before you were eligible for the treatment. So I, um, I left because I hated that, and I thought it was um, a terrible way to treat people. And I, I went to a program for homeless veterans, um, a program that had started in the late 1980s, um, to engage combat vets and um, homeless vets in um, sort of supportive relationships to help them get off the streets and so forth. And I started my own um, treatment group for people who were having drug issues and who also had mental health issues. And that was really the beginning of my introduction to harm reduction. Um, I had never heard of harm reduction, but I was told at some point after I started this group that I was doing harm reduction which meant that I was offering a supportive treatment group uh, to people who use drugs without asking them to quit before they actually came into the treatment. When I hear your stories, I'm struck by something that I, I've encountered, which is people with psychological and psychodynamic training or social work training would seemingly be in opposition or even offended by traditional uh, accusatory, abstinence overall approaches that lack context. And yet what I often see is that people throw away their own training and their own instincts, looking at the whole person and their sexual setting, when they are exposed to the addiction and the drugs field. Yet both of you were able to keep your star right in front of you and to know that your own outlook and training gave you a different and you felt, and I agree, better perspective on it. Can you, is there some way to describe how you were able to follow your own lodestar on this issue uh, while others, so many others have fallen away or failed to confront that difference? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, um, I, I think for me that it, it was partly a personality trait, you know, that I, I didn't, um, I didn't, I'm kind of, I'm a rebel. I've always been a rebel. I didn't really like um, anything that was dogmatic and telling people what they could and couldn't do. So that, that was a part of it. But I think the other thing is that, part and partly because I had good training as a therapist, that one of the, I think therapists get really scared when they're faced with a client who's, who's telling them about drug use that might be really out of control, that might be causing serious harm to themselves or others, and people get anxious and scared and don't know what to do, and that's when we tend to fall back on traditional models because these models tell us exactly what to do. And they tell us to not work with the person who's making us scared and anxious. 
that that's the thing. It, it's a solution. The traditional treatment is a solution for the therapist. You know that you don't have to work with anybody um, that you're you're scared or, or makes you feel anxious because they're not ready, if you will, for treatment. So you just kick them out of treatment. And I think I think that is a lot of what makes it hard for therapists who otherwise would be more compassionate um, to to fully embrace working with with problematic drug users. Well, I use the yeah. word I don't know bravery when I describe my reaction to your work at first, and you bring up a practical issue that therapists and helpers face. You might call it the liability issue, uh, you know, and you might, I, I, I think you're exactly right, the fear issue. What if you're dealing with a person and you're, quote, allowing them to continue in their substance use and there's a bad outcome? Right. And... And the, of course, the answer to that question appropriately is there are already thousands and millions of bad outcomes without, before the harm reduction approach became one component in treatment. But Well, exactly. But you have to put up with and confront that danger, that fear that you described. And is there any of you, when you work with other therapists, is there any, how do you train them or allow them to relax in the face of that, always that possibility of negative outcomes for which the traditional approach is quick to blame a harm reduction therapist? Well, what I, what I do um, is, you know, I reassure people that I recognize that a lot of what our clients do can be pretty scary. And that the dilemma that harm reduction is facing us with is is the dilemma that we're actually inviting people who are in trouble to come closer to us. We are not pushing them away from us. And and I try to convey that in such a way that that I'm communicating that we actually have a moral we have a moral duty to get closer to people who are in trouble. And more, the more trouble someone is in, the harder a time someone is having, the closer we need to bring, get to them. Because that's the only way that we can try to minimize the harm that's, that's happening. We push them away, we increase the likelihood of harm, and that's actually not ethical. And I, I find a lot of people respond very positively to really getting down to the ethics and the morality of what our responsibility is to our to our clients, to our field, to our clients, to, you know, the community at large. So you're actually able to recast the moral light that people may might accuse you of, oh, you let them use drugs and turn it on them. I, the way I do that is to say... What percentage of people are actually coming to treatment in the first place, traditional 12-step and other treatment? What percentage of them stick with it and succeed with it? And, you know, you get down to a number of well under 10% and maybe close Very to 1%. small number, right, yeah. And then the question becomes, well, who exactly is responsible for helping the 90% plus who don't fit into the current category? Well, right, and it, I think exactly. There gets to be this confusion between who's responsible for a bad outcome 
and who's controlling the client. And I think that where traditional treatment tries to, um, you know, thread the needle, if you will, is that uh, they claim no responsibility for bad outcomes because they are trying to control the client. And if they can't control the client, um, then they kick them out. But even the clients who, um, who they can control and who become compliant with the treatment program, even those people fail. But there really is this, this it's difficult for people to, to see the difference between allowing somebody's continued substance use or enabling their substance use and enabling their treatment. Which is, you know, as Jeannie said, the more problem, the more trouble a person has, shouldn't we be more determined to stick with them? Well, that was a brilliant opening, and I think uh, she, or maybe it was you, said also said um, it's a joint project, the responsibility between the therapist and the client, the helper mm -hmm. and the client, mm -hmm. and that immediately brings to mind the issue of self-efficacy. The concept is that person's going to live their life. And so traditional therapy does this about face. It's very controlling. It lays things out exactly that you're supposed to do. On the other hand, if the person doesn't succeed, the failure is all theirs. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're talking about both the sharing, but with the idea being that you're respecting and placing the balance of power with the individual you're working with. Right. Uh -huh. Yeah. And but also helping to take, I was going to say, but also taking partial responsibility when the plan fails. You know, we like to talk about if, if you make a plan or if we make a plan together and it doesn't work, well, then it wasn't, a, it wasn't the right plan. So we can, we can always make another plan. And that right. destigmatizes the client that, that, that takes the intense pressure of, of success or failure off the client, and it also offers a message of, of possibility. There are lots of plans in the world. We just need to find the one that's going to work best for you. Well, that's so and, true because, mm -hmm. because it's a work in progress, and you can never, in any project of any sort, you can never lay out the entire thing start to finish. A good therapist has to be responsive and developmental and, and evolve with the, in the course of the relationship. Right. You know, uh -huh. I think the other thing, I mean, certainly, you know, client self-determination, you know, regards to both treatment goals, pace of treatment, plans, everything is, is one of our core values. I think the other thing that, that really sets this work apart is that, you know, in harm reduction therapy, we are really curious about the person's relationship with drugs. We don't assume that we know everything about it, even though um, we're, we're experts. So, but we don't assume that we know everything about an individual person's relationship. So we are incredibly curious um, and incredibly open to hearing about the person's own experience with drugs. Um, and, and In a way, you're doing research at exactly the same time you're helping people by being open to what they're telling you. That's, that's, is, that's right. right, actually, yeah. You know, in, in my first book, Practicing Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, and then when Jeannie and I revised it, you know, we talk about that, you know, in terms of assessment as treatment. You know, that there isn't, 
there isn't a time when you find out information and then you plan your treatment on it. That you're, you're constantly involved in this mutual assessment of what's going on, what are the benefits, what are the harms. Um, and it's, it's this ongoing collaboration. Exactly. And, you know, what, what I like to say to people is if, if you're going to contemplate changing something or giving something up, you better know what it's doing for you or you better know why it's important to you because you need to know what you're losing. And it doesn't matter in some ways how much harm it's doing you. It's still something that's that's been around for a while and that you're familiar with and that will leave an empty place in your life. And it you'll have an easier time doing that if you if you really understand what it is that you're losing. Mm-hmm. And well, that's, one, of the, one of the ways that we, we talk with people about that is by using the phrase, just say no. But the no is K-N-O-W instead of N-O. So, you know, just say no. Know what drug you're using. Know why you're using it. Know what effect you want to get. Um, know how to maximize the benefits and minimize the harms. And it's, it, you know, it's that self-knowledge that is, is really at, at the core of helping people really assess, do I want to make a change? And if so, what am I going to have to, what am I have go, going to have to do and maybe what am I going to have to put in place in order for that hole that Jeannie referred to in, in order to take care of that hole? Has, what, have you, what has it been like for you to present this radically different model? How have you been, I, I'm sure the answer is yes, confronted sometimes in extreme ways with people who just attack your whole conception and approach. Has that been a, a major part of your experience in the field or something you know, that you've had it's to deal funny. with? funny. I mean, I don't know, Jeannie, you know, I mean, we may have different perspectives on this, but I, I expected more harsh um, disagreements and confrontations when I first started, you know, taught, you know, doing talks or doing trainings. Um, and I sort of prepared for that by being a little combative myself. Um, and I, I, people were not that opposed to it. But what I learned, what I, what I was taught by a, uh, a harm reduction priest, uh, preacher, uh, Reverend Edwin Sanders, when I asked him how to, how to deal with a hostile audience, what he said to me was, you have to remember there's the truth and then there are the facts. And you can never change somebody's truth with your facts. And that, that opened me up to being much more able to deal with people who didn't like or agree with what I was saying um, because I knew that I was confronting something that they felt as a, as a a strongly held truth and that I couldn't do it by laying out the facts of treatment doesn't work and this and that. And so what I tend to do in talks or in trainings is I I try to make sure that people get an emotional experience out of it because it's only when you get down to the emotions of people who are doing this work or loved ones who are suffering alongside of people who misuse drugs, it's only when you get down to their emotions 
that they become more open. You know, I try to do similar things. If you've ever seen me work, I always try, like I ask the audience, what's the hardest addiction to quit? And it turns out to be smoking and how many of them have done that. I try to key into their something personal about them rather than uh-huh. banging them over over the head with, well, how many people quit on their own? I get them to reflect on their own self-efficacy, their own experiences like that, which is something that I also use in treatment where people have quit one addiction and and I know your own approach there's a concept in here that's pretty critical which is strength based which Mm -hmm. is talking about what is Uh good about the persons and successful about the person's life rather than focusing solely on the the negatives and the failures Mm -hmm. you bet you bet yeah I I, um I think one of the most valuable um tools that we have at our disposal is uh, a compliment that if that if we can um, discover things that we admire about the folks that we're working with, and if and, and if we can if we can make that admiration clear to them by complimenting that them or admiring them, then it starts to give people a, a, a core of as you say self-efficacy. Um, assuming that that is weak in the first place. Um, which it often is if people have been attacked and criticized for their choices up to now. And um, people start to build build their self-concept um, more strongly around all the things that they're doing right. I, I think that's, that's so critical. I, I take that sometimes even one step further. Maybe, maybe you would think I take it too far. I, I know that you don't emphasize the trauma experience because to me and I think you that's too negative looking and and focusing only on the negatives in your background and I sometimes use the idea that people having been through negative experiences both in the past you know and currently around their substance use in a way it opens them up to a wider range of experience and appreciation of the whole universe and I Uh it's almost in a way something fortunate that can be turned to your positive benefit. Uh-huh. You know, I, I sort of have the same attitude toward, uh, you know, things like childhood experiences and trauma as I do about drugs, is that there may be benefits as well as harm associated with it, that some people come out of traumatic experiences more resilient. Other people, you know, on the other hand, come out really damaged, and with great difficulty managing their feelings and with enormous difficulty in relationships. And so, you know, so they, they may have, you know, they may have gotten some, I don't know, benefits or strengths, if you will, out of their background, but, but they're also often, often suffering a lot. And, and I think that, you know, because we see alcohol and drug problems as, as complex, and that in addition to biological and psychosocial, that there are significant psychological underpinnings to, to kind of chronic problems with drugs. Um, our treatment staff are all masters and doctoral level psychotherapists, um, whom we train to also become experts in drugs, drug actions, and the skills that are required to work successfully, especially with people who've often failed at other, other traditional treatments. So, you know, so the strength-based approach is, 
is complemented by the understanding that people have suffered emotional harm also as a result of early childhood and early interpersonal experiences. And we just think that, that psychotherapists are the people who are best trained to, to deal with that. That being said, we also recognize, because we train hundreds of non-clinical staff every year, we also recognize that anybody who comes into contact with a client has the ability to form a therapeutic relationship, you know, and so we do, we do a lot of training of these attitudes and techniques with people who are doing case management or doing outreach or doing, you know, interviews for shelter beds, um, you know, who are not psychotherapists but that we recognize can have a wonderful or negative impact on the clients that they come across. Well, one thing this latest discussion points to is that sort of an aspect that maybe people don't think about in terms of your work and your enterprise is that you are entrepreneurs. You've developed a, a large-scale, many-pronged organization. You have a physical place. You see clients. You do training. Uh, you work with groups. You do outreach. How... Was entrepreneurship part of your nature or your background? How did, that, how, did the, how did you get to be so expansive in your operation? Uh, we're, we're crazy. It's, it's, how do we it's, help? it's serendipitous. We, 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 go, we, we go wherever we're invited. <laughs> right. And we actually have well, we say yes. Yeah. We we do we actually. To, to, I'm glad you said that, Stanton, because seriously, <laughs> um, we our our philosophy is say yes. We always say yes, and people like hearing yes. But no, seriously, we um, <laughs> we through through our through uh, some of our early trainings, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, different organizations started saying, could we have a few hours a week of a therapist here? So we'd be like in a, in a homeless drop-in center or um, an HIV um, case management program or you know, any number of other, uh, other places. And we'd say, sure, um, we can give you a therapist a few hours a week. And now, you know, 17 years later, uh, we actually have therapists in 10 different locations in the Bay Area. So we, we have a massively diverse um, group of, group of uh, folks that we actually work with. Right. We, we work with about 900 people a year in these community-based programs, in addition to the 200 or so that we see in our uh, fee-for-service offices in Oakland and San Francisco. But, yeah, and, and a lot of the staff, you know, in these, you know, these community placements have grown from, well, can we have a therapist a few hours a week, to can we have one or two therapists full-time? Um, so we've created little mini harm reduction therapy centers in, did you say 10 different agencies, Jeannie? Yeah, yeah. 10 different places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we brought up a topic about, like, you, in a way you were saying that people were more receptive than you might have originally anticipated to a new approach. Uh -huh. On the other hand, you are in the Bay Area. How do you see... Yeah, where the field is at right this second. I mean, it's it. I mean, 
you can make two broad statements which seem to be contradictory. One is things have certainly changed since we all began in doing this. On the other hand, there still is a remarkable resistance to the way our way of thinking and yeah. that we've been describing. Well, and yes, and I find it kind of disheartening at times because even though when we talk with you know with individuals, when we talk with staff groups, it seems like there's a growing understanding and a growing acceptance of this way of working. The institutions do not change. They have not changed yet. And that needs to come from the staff on the inside working. But, um, you know, most program policies and procedures haven't changed, even if staff attitudes have. And that, that can be really, really disheartening. Um, you know, there's just such a reliance on um, the 12-step and disease model and such a reliance on that, the split funding stream that institutional change has been extremely difficult, even in the Bay Area, even in San Francisco, which the public health department has a mandate that public health programs utilize a harm reduction approach. Most of the residential treatment programs for substances in San Francisco are not anything that resembles harm reduction. Now, they're still kicking people out for using or for relapsing. Um, they're still using confrontational techniques. So, you know, even in what we consider sort of the liberal Bay Area, institutional change has been very, very, very slow. It's like that depressing old French phrase. What is it? La plus a chance. Yeah, the more things oh, yeah. change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The more in fact, the same things. Um, yeah, I, what, Judy? Uh, Judy, you're going to say no, something? No, no, it's okay. Okay, go ahead, Stan. A little bit of a plug for where Zach is out. There's an in inextricable link in my mind to policy and what we're trying to accomplish for the reasons that you just described. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can help a lot of individuals. You can even set up a private practice. And, you know, I have an online program, a life process program. But unless you change some fundamental institutional uh, pedestals and bulwarks, you're just not going to really shift everything. And, and in my way of thinking, that's the explanation for why we keep doing more of the same thing, and yet we're observing, as everybody's aware, despite implementing more and more changes and more and more control of prescriptions, we're seeing more and more negative outcomes. Are you having that same kind of reaction to the current landscape of doubling down on losing strategies? Well, I think that, um, you know, that, that in addition to sort of the, the psychosocial viewpoint that, that we have, um, we also see both the stigma and the negative consequences of drug use as a social justice issue in the lives of our clients and in the larger society. And that's where the sort of insti the treatment institutions come in, too. Um, and because of the social justice perspective, you know, that people are put in jail for, um, you know, for drug use, that we really ourselves and we encourage other people to maintain an active engagement in changing drug policy um, and in working on that, that institutional level and changing the current treatment system that 
just like our drug policy is also based on stigma and punishment. And I think that that social justice approach is, is very, very important. Um, and our staff are extremely dedicated to that as well. And it's really important that we take a contextual view of, um, of so-called drug epidemics. That if you, if you look at the larger uh, socio-cultural and economic context, the disaster that we have is not drugs. The disaster that we have is what's driving them. And when we pile... Um, uh, you know, criminal sanctions and stigma on top of that, it's lethal. It's a lethal combination. Yeah. Well, the way I think of it is um, we look, we trace people's dysfunctional use behavior and dysfunctional use of substances to negative experiences they have had. And what's worse is if they're ongoing negative experiences, obviously, right. because that's what we can most affect. And we perceive all around us these social inequities and these feelings of disempowerment in the larger society. So it's a really tall order to say, well, we're going to start working with individuals or groups to make them feel more empowered and to, to, to try to give them the tools to deal with a world around them when that seems they seem to be on other grounds being deprived of those things. Thanks to be what? Well, I know Zach is working. He's an example. I was going to point out, He's in a group that's dealing with social policy, uh, with uh, drug policy issues at the county level in Burlington, and he keeps trying to introduce these issues that I think we're all pretty familiar and comfortable with, what the, the context. And everybody's always running back to, well, prescription practices. I think it gets back to your opening comments. Well, those are easy, and blaming the drugs is easy. Right, right. And everything else is hard. Yep. Yeah, and there is a there's a recent article in the New Yorker. I think it's the yeah it's the June fifth issue of the New Yorker. Uh, the article is called "The Addicts Next Door," and you know while I don't like the term addicts, um, it is it's a, a an article about the reality of the opioid epidemic in a small community in West Virginia, and it's one of the first and few articles that I have seen that emphasizes the sociocultural and the emotional aspects of the opioid epidemic and doesn't, doesn't overly stigmatize doctors and pills and drugs, but really talks about how, you know, these are people whose lives are fraught with poverty and um, lack of opportunity. Um, and depression and anxiety, and and these are not in individual ills necessarily. These are these are social ills, and people are responding to that with um, you know with increased drug use, and drug dealers are responding to it with increasing the supply. Um, you know, but but this article really points out um, how how the opioid Overdose epidemic is so much about social justice and and social um, you know sociocultural uh, aspects to people's lives, and that you know it's it's no accident that the largest percentage of opioid overdoses happen in Rust Belt areas of the country and among Trump supporters. Uh, we're getting a little bit towards the end of our. <laughs> 
Well, well, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> don't go spam. <laughs> the higher the percentage of, the higher the level of drug deaths reported in counties, the, the greater the likelihood of supporting Trump. They actually did that wow. research. Wow. Wow. I say both are, are indicators of desperation. <laughs> right. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're coming a little bit to the close of our time, so I want to, you know, move into some difficult concepts. Uh, one... One thing that people like to throw around, and liberals among whom I count myself uh, are the maybe even worse than conservatives, they like to say that all people are equally susceptible to the disease of addiction. And that sounds very open-minded, and, it, and we appreciate that they're trying to respect everyone, but it just doesn't ring true in terms of what you just described, or what would you say, well... You know, President Obama's daughter's one who's going to Harvard and she's taking a year abroad before then is as equally likely to become addicted as those people in West Virginia. It, it seems like a fair and an equitable thing to say, but it's a way in which sometimes our own appealing rhetoric works against our actually confronting the real problems. Well, we don't like to make things complicated. We like to make things simple. Because we, 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 you know, we can respond emotionally to simple messages, and it makes us feel really good. But, the, you know, what we like to say about our work is we like to make things as complicated as they are. And you can't know necessarily how susceptible somebody is to um, drug misuse unless you understand, you know, the both the context of each person's life and then the way that they manage that context, their, their, their internal workings. Um, and, and so, you know, just making, sorry, I'm getting a little, um, well, the making generalizations is ridiculous. Oh, right. Calling this an equal opportunity disease. First of all, I don't like you saying I, a disease. But it, it yeah. hides the fact that there that there are social conditions that can drive you know really serious drug problems. Um, the other thing that happens, I think, is that most of the residential treatment programs that are not publicly funded are what I refer to as the high end treatment programs are extremely expensive, and so what you see are people who have economic means. Being, especially young people, being sent to these really expensive programs, and then those people get counted as part of the addiction statistics, when what we know is that most young people, especially people of, young people with, of means, will grow out of a drug problem you know, at, you know, at some point in their lives, usually by the time that they're 30. And yet, if, they can, if their parents can afford to send them to a... $40,000 a month treatment program when they're, you know, 18, then they get counted as part of the people um, who, who become addicted. And so that makes it look like that it's an equal opportunity disease. And it's like, no, it's that high-end treatment is not equal opportunity <laughs> So high-end treatment gets a better reputation because really it's dealing with a resourceful clientele who right. has more motivation and more support for getting better in their family and in their community. 
Right, and, and, even, their, and even their success rates are not good. I, I like to refer to these programs as the miracle of 28 days. You know, that, that right. somehow we expect to send people off to, you know, a lovely rehab facility where there's good nutrition and, and yoga and meditation, and in 28 days expect that they have forever changed. Which gets back to the whole question of and the larger cultural issues. Is treatment really a solution on its own? When you're talking about... I, I know you pre you prefer to have longer relationships with people over time rather than intensive short-term relationships because you're dealing with the person's lifespan. It's a way of converting the fact that most people do get better on their own over time with, uh -huh. you know, working with them over that framework. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't know the extent to which we might be contributing to somebody getting better. What we, what we know is that if we make ourselves available to people, they'll come in if they want to, because it's completely voluntary, and they'll talk to us about whatever they think their problems are. It's like a PPO model. It's like, you know, you're accessed when you're needed. Yeah. And, and if you talk to us about your relationship or you, or, or you talk to us about your depression or anxiety and we help you, you know, um, find a psychiatrist who will prescribe you medications despite the fact that you're using drugs, all of this may have a direct or a peripheral impact on your relationship with drugs, hopefully hopefully for the better. But there may be a dozen other things in your life that are impacting your relationship with drugs, which have nothing to do with us. But you get to decide what you want to do with us. You get to decide what you think you need help with. And that will help you manage your life better. We're, I know we're getting to a time when Zach wants to draw this to a close. He wants to try and keep this under an hour. So I'd like to maybe throw out one more pointed word of praise for you. In my experience in New York, harm reduction treatment has grown, but it tends to be a more privileged kind of uh, treatment programs. The ones that I'm aware of, but uh. obviously that, that leaves out needle exchange programs, which are more community-oriented. But your mm -hmm. practice has always been diverse, up and down, and welcoming mm -hmm. to everybody, which is, to mm -hmm. me, maybe among your most remarkable accomplishments. It's, you know, it's, you're not just dealing with a rarefied, high-end group that can intellectualize all of their problems. And they're the high prognosis we can start with. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. true. Yeah. Yeah, we have long-term long -term relationships with people who... Oh, gosh, yeah, people who uh, have, you know, lived in marginal housing situations or lived on the streets for a really long time who whose problems are so complicated and so deep and so old. Um, and we work we, and we work with um, kids, too. We, we actually work with um, uh, youth who are experiencing homelessness and um, youth who are fleeing to San Francisco, which is kind of a magnet from abusive homes in other parts of the country. Um, and, and we feel like, as practitioners, um, it really keeps us honest and it keeps us humble. You know, I just am amazed by your bravery because, you know, you're taking on situations that are sometimes, it, they're not irredeemable, but they're, they represent really difficult and significant challenges where many have failed before. And, you know, I just want to commend your work, your 
writing or taking on the hard topics when you're uniquely experienced in doing that. And, you know, we just want to make sure that you get due credit that's represented in your book for, for being willing to tackle all of these topics as difficult as they are. Well, thank so you. So bless the both of you for your work. Thank you, Stanton. Thank you, Stanton. I do. I do sometimes forget that that maybe maybe we are kind of brave. So it's it's very nice to be reminded of that. Like the guy goes in the fire and rescues somebody, and then when everybody says you're brave, he says, "Well, that was just my job." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stanton, Jeannie, Pat, thank you all so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Zach. And we'll talk yeah. soon, and, and hopefully for, for hopefully for a round two. 